Thank you, Praise Band, and leading us in worship. You know, I don't know about you, but I've been riding around town, and maybe you have too. Have any of you seen people's Christmas decorations up? I was riding down Highway 9 West, and I drove past Missy's just yesterday, and I looked over, and it looked like a Christmas wonderland. I mean, it's all the Christmas decorations, and I don't want to stress you, and I don't want to depress you, um, but, you know, Christmas is coming in just seven weeks. It will be here. But I have discovered what will really help you prepare for Christmas, where you won't have any stress, and then you won't be depressed. If you just remember this one thing, it will help you always be ready. And it's this. Christmas always comes on December 25th. If you will remember that, you'll do well. But it just seems like Christmas comes 12 times a year, doesn't it? feels that way. But we're beginning our, our series this morning as we prepare for Christmas. Uh, it's the first of six messages. And the sermon series is entitled Unwrapping Christmas. And I don't know about you, but have you ever received a, a Christmas present you just couldn't wait to unwrap? And maybe it sat there and you just anticipated opening it. And, and then when you finally got the op- opportunity to open it, have you ever opened a gift and you thought, wow, it just doesn't get any better than that? I mean, I, have you ever received a gift that you felt that way? It just doesn't get any better? I remember a few years ago when I was about 10 years old, not that long ago, I got a, a gift I wasn't expecting. I got a leather members only jacket. Do you remember those? And I thought, really? It, it doesn't get any better than a leather members only. I thought that was the coolest thing. Well, when we read Hebrews, we discover the same thing. The writer of Hebrews, when he wrote Hebrews, he unwrapped Christmas for us. And he basically says, it doesn't get any better than Jesus. Jesus is the best gift. It doesn't get any better than that. And the book of Hebrews, maybe more than any other book, exalts Christ. In a way no other book does. You know, if you were to read the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, you would read the historical account of Jesus' birth. It tells us about the historical reality of His birth. But when you read Hebrews, it tells you the spiritual significance of His birth. Christmas is all about Jesus and it doesn't get any better than Him. And so the theme of Hebrews, when you read it, is this. Jesus is better than anything else. How many of you remember singing that little praise song? Lord, you are. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you. And I do believe that was the heart of the writer of Hebrews. I believe that when he thought about Jesus and he compared everything to Jesus, he said, you know, nothing I desire compares with you. And so we're going to unwrap Christmas through the lens of Hebrews for the next several weeks. And we're going to discover that there's nothing better than Jesus. He is the greatest gift to the world. And so if you have your Bibles, turn in or turn on to Hebrews chapter 1. Now, while you're turning, let me just remind you, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And that's why I haven't named an author We don't know who wrote it, but we do know that he wrote it to Jewish Christians, Jews who became Christians, and they were being persecuted, they were being ostracized, they were being counseled by their culture, because it was not kosher 
for a person who was a, a Jew to become a follower of Christ. And so they were being counseled in that way. And, and so the writer of Hebrews wanted to encourage them. And he wanted to encourage them to realize that there's no one better than Jesus. So let's read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the time past through the fathers by the prophets, has in the last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The very first thing I want you to notice is the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus. The very first word in the book of Hebrews is what? God. You know, this is the only book of the Bible that begins with the very first word, God. Now, in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created. But the, the book of Hebrews is the only one that the very first word is God. God. The writer of Hebrews doesn't try to give a defense for God. He doesn't try to give a, 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 a case for God. He doesn't try to give a case for Christ. He doesn't give any arguments as to why we should believe that, that there is a God. He just assumes, he just presupposes that God exists. It's his presupposition that God exists. You know, sometimes whenever you're talking to people, and uh, some, some of you, you get intimidated when you're talking to somebody, and they say, well, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. And sometimes you get, you get nervous, you get kind of tense, you kind of clam up, you don't know how to respond to that. You know, they're an atheist, what do I say to that person? Well, I'll tell you what to say to that person when they say they're an atheist. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I believe there is a God. And then you say to them, you know what, you show me the, your evidence that there is no God and I will show you my evidence that there is a God. I believe the evidence is in our favor. I said, well, you know what, let me just point to the stars. Somebody put that there. Let me look at the sun and the moon, the mountains and the oceans. Let me look at all the animals. You're here. That's evidence, right? Then you say, you show me your evidence. For some reason, we've been told or convinced that we have to prove the existence of God. I believe that the atheist has the burden of proof. I think they're the ones who have to prove there is no God. And I'll just tell you, the evidence is in our favor. And I heard someone tell a story about a teacher who didn't believe in God and he was trying to influence his little students. And one day, he told one of these little boys, he said, I want you to go right on the board. God is nowhere. That little boy, he didn't really know how to space his words. You know, you're learning sometimes, you don't know how to space your words. And so, it, so instead, he wrote, God is now here. God is now here and we have the evidence in our favor. Now, Hebrews just supposes, presupposes there is a God. He's thinking, listen, that truth is self-evident. I don't need to make that case. God exists. And so, he not only says there is a God, but in verse 1, he says there's a God who speaks. Francis Schaeffer was a theologian who said this, There is a God, and He is not silent. He speaks. God speaks. God speaks and He reveals Himself to you and me. And we cannot know God unless He reveals Himself to us. Now look at verse 1 again. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. Now God has spoken in various ways and at various times. I think about Psalm 19. The Bible says that God has spoken through His creation. And there is no place where His voice is not heard. No matter where you live, creation speaks and declares the majesty of God. Think about in Genesis, the Bible says that God spoke to Adam. 
in the garden. I think about in Genesis chapter 22, the Bible says that, that the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham and told him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. God spoke. I think about in Exodus chapter 3, there was a man named Moses and he was out just minding his own business, tending his flock one day and all of a sudden he saw a burning bush and it wasn't being consumed and he got inquisitive. He got curious. He wanted to find out why this bush wasn't being consumed and so he went to investigate and I think some days he probably wished I'd never done that. But God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. I think about one day and, and Exodus records it whenever... God spoke through the thundering on Mount Sinai when He gave the Ten Commandments. God spoke. And He gave the law. Did you know that God speaks through the law to us? Do you know what the law reveals to you and me? It reveals that we are sinners and we cannot get to God on our own. We cannot be righteous. There is none good, no, not one. The law reveals that to us. God has spoken through His law. You can't get to God on your own. Think about how God spoke to the Egyptian Pharaoh. Through the plagues. You know what he was doing? He was trying to get Pharaoh's attention. And he spoke to him through plagues. God, and in various ways and at various times, has spoken. Thinking about Numbers chapter 22, there was a man named Balaam, a prophet. And he was a prophet for hire. And what did Balaam do? He was, he was being bribed by a group of people called the Moabites. And they wanted him to curse the Israelites because they were God's chosen people. He said, they said, if you curse them, then we'll be successful in battle against them. And so Balaam was a prophet for hire. And he got on his donkey one day and he was going to go curse the Israelites. And so God put an angel in front of him. He was going to kill him. And then God gave that donkey an opportunity to talk. And that donkey said to Balaam, don't you see that angel in front of you? He's about to kill you. He said, you can't be so foolish to think that you're going to curse what God has blessed. Now, if I'd have been on that donkey, I'd have gotten off that donkey. But Balaam had a conversation. But I would have never done that. But God spoke through a, a donkey, so we don't need to get too prideful when God speaks through us. He can th speak through a donkey. He can speak through us. God spoke. I think about how God spoke to Joseph and Daniel through dreams. He spoke through the, to the prophet Ezekiel through visions. Think about how God spoke to Elijah in 1 Kings 19. You know how He did it? Through a still, small voice. God speaks in various ways and at various times. And God has spoken through angels and He's spoken through prophets. You know, God speaks through His Word, doesn't He? You know, God's Word is a comfort when you need comfort. God, God's Word is a source of conviction when God wants to convict you. God speaks through His Word. You know, have you ever thought about how God revealed about Jesus' birth through the prophets? I mean, and, uh, God revealed to Moses in Genesis 3.15. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan. And between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy about Jesus' coming to this earth. He revealed to Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. The Lord Himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Think about how He revealed to Hosea in 11.1. He said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You remember that Jesus spent several years in Egypt with Mary and Joseph. 
when Herod was trying to kill him. Think about how he revealed to Micah in Micah 5.2. He said Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. I think about in Daniel 7.13 how he revealed to Daniel in a vision. Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. An everlasting kingdom. God revealed that through the prophets. And God has spoken in various times and in various ways. But I want you to look at verse 2. But... Has in the last days he spoken to us by his son? Jesus is God's final revelation. There is no greater revelation than Jesus. If you want to understand Christmas, then you need to know Jesus. If you want to understand God, then you need to know Jesus. If you want to know how to live for God, then you need to study the life of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus said this, No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom He chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is the revealer. He is the revelation. He is the final revelation. Some people talk about today this new revelation. There's new revelation you know, I was at a conference a number of years ago, and it was a, a lot of young people there, and they were very impressionable. And this one person came out, and he read Ecclesiastes 1.9. Ecclesiastes 1.9 records Solomon's words, King Solomon. And King Solomon said this, There is nothing new under the sun. And this speaker said Solomon was wrong. He was referring to new revelation, friends. There is no new revelation. Jesus is the final revelation. He is the quintessential revelation. He is the ultimate revelation of God. And don't be mistaken, Jesus did not come to replace the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus is the revelation. Let me ask you this morning, do you know Him? Do you know Jesus? You cannot know God without knowing Jesus. So there's a revelation of Jesus, but there's a second thing I want you to notice. There's also the creation of Jesus. Jesus is the creator. You say, well, I thought God was the creator. Look at verse 2. For God in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. You know, sometimes people say that Jesus is not God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we know that God is the creator, don't we? He created this world out of nothing. The theological term is ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. God created this universe out of nothing. He didn't need any any extra components to to design the world. He he did it out of nothing. I've told you before the fictitious story about a group of scientists who all got together, and they said, you know, we really don't need God anymore. I mean, look at all that we can do. We've got our technology so advanced. We don't really need God anymore. We can do this on our own. And so they decided they were going to let one scientist to go tell God that he wasn't needed. Well, this one scientist <clears throat> went to God. 
And he said, well, you know, God, we don't really need you anymore. I mean, we can clone people today. We can do all these wonderful things. We really don't need you. And so really, you could really go take a hike. And God's just listening. He listened patiently. He listened, you know, respectfully. He said, well, you know what? Let's just have a little test. Let's just see how much you've advanced. He said, let's, let's have a man-making contest. He said, let's do it the old school way like I did when I made Adam. And this scientist said, okay, we can do that. And so he goes out and he gets him a big old bucket of dirt. And he brings it back and God says, no, you go get your own dirt. Because God has created everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the word. I want you to write these verses down. John 1, 3. It says that all things were made through Him, Jesus. And without Him, Jesus, nothing was made that was made. Who is the Creator? God. Who is the Creator according to John 1, 3? Jesus. Jesus is God, the Creator, God. In Colossians 1.16, it says this, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created through Him and for Him. A few years ago, we were going to Israel and somebody called me and said, hey, would you do me a favor? I said, what? He said, would you bring me some dirt from around the temple? I said, why would you want me to bring some dirt from around the temple? He said, well, I want some dirt where Jesus walked. I said, can I bring you some from my backyard? You can have some that he made. Jesus made everything. He is the creator God. Paul said Jesus created thing in he- everything in heaven and on earth. He is the creator. Now, you may be here this morning, and you may feel like, you know, I'm just nothing. I have no value. I am nothing. I'll never be anything. I'll never amount to anything. I'm just nothing. Let me just remind you. If God can create this universe out of nothing, He can make you a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. If God can take this universe and make it out of nothing, He can make you into something. You might say, well, you don't know how dirty my heart is. You don't know how all these things I've done. I've done so many bad things. No, I don't know those things. I don't know what you've done. I don't know how dark your heart is. I don't know how dirty your heart is. But I do know this. There was a man named King David who one day realized I have a dirty, unclean heart. I have a vile, wicked, lustful heart. And one day he said to God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, if God can create this universe out of nothing, he can create in you a clean heart if you'll bring it to Him. Create in me a new heart. God can do it. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Not only did Jesus create this universe, but He holds this universe together. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He is upholding all things by the power of His Word. This world is held together by the power of Christ. He holds it together. I want to give you some other verses. Colossians 1, 7. In Colossians 1, 7, Paul said, And He, Jesus, is before all things. And in Him, all things consist. What does it mean, all things consist? It means that He is holding this universe together by His own power. He holds this universe together. The reason it doesn't come apart is because He is in control. He maintains it. 
Scientists sometimes will contemplate the precision of the universe and how finely tuned this universe really is. And they call this sometimes the anthropic principle. Now, the anthropic comes from the word anthropos, which means man. And what they're saying is that this world is so finely designed, so finely tuned, that it's, it's almost like God, I mean, somebody made it for man to live here to sustain life. And so they call it the anthropic principle. Now, you think about it for a moment. If this earth was tilted any differently than it was, if this earth was any closer to the sun, we would fry. If it was any further from the sun, we would freeze. It's finely tuned. If the gravitational pull wasn't exactly like it is, and maybe it was too strong, we would be crushed. Or if maybe it was too weak, we would just fly off into space. This earth is finely tuned and is held together by Christ. If this universe were expanding at a slower rate or a faster rate, life would be unsustainable. The earth is precisely designed to sustain life. It's unique. Who's holding all that together? Who maintains this universe? The Bible says Jesus does. In Him all things consist. He maintains it. He's the glue that keeps everything together. You know, this universe is not going to fall apart if I drive my gas-powered truck to work. Jesus is maintaining this universe. He is holding it all together. And it's not going to come apart on His watch. Now what's the takeaway? Jesus not only holds this world together, but He's the one who holds you together. Jesus is not only the one who holds this universe together, but He's the one who holds your life together. And when you're, you feel like your life is coming unraveled, when you feel like your life is coming unglued, no matter what's going on in your life, He is the glue that holds you together. I don't know about you, but that's comforting. Maybe you're having a physical problem. Maybe you're having a health issue and you feel like your world's just crumbling in on you. Or maybe you're in a financial crisis. Or maybe you're in a, uh, a spiritual dark, spiritually dark place. He holds you together. He is the one who holds us together. He's the glue that keeps you from coming apart. And Jesus is the only one who can put your life together. He's the only one who can keep your life together. You know, I read a story I don't know, a number of years ago about a dad who came home from work one day. He was just exhausted. He was beat. He was tired. He was a lot like the guys who worked at the clothes closet yesterday. He went home. He just wanted to get in his lazy chair and just read his newspaper and relax. So he came home and his newspaper. He sat in his lazy boy. And his little son came up. He wanted to play. And the dad just didn't have any energy. And there he was reading the newspaper. And on that newspaper, there was a picture of the, of the world. And this dad said, you know... I need to find something to occupy my son. So he took a pair of scissors and he cut that world, that globe up in about a hundred or so different pieces. And he spread it out all over the floor and turned it all different ways. And he said, son, why don't you put that world back together? He thought, well, that's going to give him about an hour or two. I can just sit back and relax. In about five minutes, he said, dad, I'm done. His dad said, what? How in the world could you have finished putting the globe back together? <clears throat> I didn't know you knew that much about geology. He said, well, Dad, it was easy. On the back side was a picture of Jesus' face. And when I put Jesus' face together, the world came together. You know what? That's how it is with my life and your life. When we put Jesus' face together, our world comes together. And only Jesus can make your world come together.
Jesus created this world and He maintains it. He owns it all. The Bible says, look at verse 2 for a moment. He owns everything. The world belongs to Him. Look at verse 2. It says that He is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus. He is the heir of all things. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. The, the world and the people in it, they all belong to Jesus. You don't own anything in this world and I don't own anything. It all belongs to Him. You know, the Bible never talks about ownership. It always talks about stewardship. You don't own it. You're just, you're just using it. How are you using what God's given to you? Because it doesn't belong to you. The Bible says that Jesus is the heir of all things. But I want to give you some other good news. Not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but I want to give you a verse. Romans 8, 17. Romans 8, 17 says this. If we are children of God, if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If you are a child of God, you are a joint heir with Christ. I don't know who it was that said it. I think it was Adrian Rogers who told this story. But he told the story about a wealthy Roman who had a very faithful servant named Marcellus. But he had a son who was a disappointment. And he was a very wealthy man. Well, when he died, they opened the man's will, the wealthy man's will. And to the son's disappointment, he, he left everything to Marcellus and left him nothing. But then, he said, in his will, there was a provision. He could choose one thing out of his estate and only one thing. And so the administrator of the will said to the man's son, he said, now you can have one thing of the estate. What will you choose? The son thought for a moment. He said, I choose Marcellus. Because he knew if I have Marcellus, I have it all. And the reality is when you have Jesus, you have it all. We are co-heirs with Christ. So there's a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the final word. He is the God who speaks. Then we see the creation of Jesus. He is the one who creates. He created this world out of nothing. He maintains it and He owns it all. So we see there's a revelation of Jesus. There's a creation of Jesus. But I also want you to see that there's an incarnation of Jesus. Look at Hebrews 1.3 again. It says that Jesus, who being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person... What does that mean, that Jesus is the express image of His person? What does that mean? It means that Jesus would one day come in the flesh, and He did. God in the flesh. He is the express, express image of God. It means He is an exact copy. That's what that word means. I like how John 14, 9 says it. And actually, these are Jesus' words. Jesus said, If you have seen Me... You have seen the Father. He is the image, the express image of His person. I like Colossians 1.15 where Paul wrote this. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God in the flesh. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God. Jesus was God before He came to this earth. He was God when He came to this earth. And He was God when He left this earth. Jesus is not half man. And He's not half God. 
He is the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. It is fair to say that Jesus was a man. But it is also fair to say that Jesus is God. He is the God-man. And you need to remember this. Jesus didn't become God when he, was, when, he, when, he let, when he came to this earth. He didn't become God when he went to heaven. Jesus already was God. Whenever Jesus left heaven, he was already God. Jesus is the God who went from being the creator to being in the cradle. That's God. God in the flesh. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. For unto us a child is born. A child was born, supernaturally. But then he says this, a son is given. He didn't say a son was born, he said a son was given. Because the son has always existed. Jesus has always been, always was, and always will be. Jesus. God in the flesh. Some of you I know like to read history. I'm not that much of a history buff, but I do like history. And there was a man who lived in history. His name was Napoleon Bonaparte. He was a French revolutionary. He was a French general. He was a prince at one time. He was a king. He was an emperor temporarily. He was exiled on the island of Elba for a short time. And At some point in Napoleon Bonaparte's life, he began to contemplate on the life of Jesus. Now, I don't think he was a spiritual man. We don't really know anything about his salvation or where he stood with Christ. But as he began to contemplate the person of Jesus, he had some interesting insights. And I would like to read to you what he wrote. This is what Napoleon Bonaparte said about Jesus. He said, I know men. And I can tell you, Jesus was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. He said that resemblance does not exist. He said there is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. They're not even in comparison. He said everything about him astonishes me. Beside him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His ideals... And his sentiments, the truths which he announces, his manner of convincing, they are not explained by human organization or by the nature of things. And then I like this last part. He said his birth, the history of his life, the profundity of his doctrine, his gospel, his apparition, his empire, his march across the ages and the realms, is for me a prodigy, a mystery insoluble, which plunges me into reverence which I cannot escape. And mystery is there before my eyes, mystery which I cannot deny or explain. Here I see nothing human. He realized that Jesus was God in the flesh. Napoleon Bonaparte. Jesus is the incarnation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And when you unwrap Christmas, uh, Christmas, you realize that the creator God came to be born in a cradle. He is the incarnation of God. I don't know who wrote this. That's an anonymous writer. It's attributed to somebody who was anonymous. He wrote this. Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became son of man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature. He lived in poverty. 
was reared in obscurity and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned scholars. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed bodies. This Jesus is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology. He is the harmonizer of all discord and the healer of all diseases. And throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him, Satan could not seduce him, death could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. His name is Jesus and he is God incarnate, amen? That's who Jesus is. He is the revelation of God. He is the creation of God. He is the incarnation of God. And let me just give you one last thought. He is the salvation of God. Look at verse uh, 3 one more time. He says, And when He by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The last thing I want you to see is that Jesus is our salvation. Sometimes some of you will say, Well, you know, I listen to, I listen to David Jeremiah. I'm thinking, I could see you might need some David Jeremiah after this. Or you might say, I I listen to to Charles Stanley. I'm thinking, you know, I I love all those preachers. I love to listen to Adrian Rogers and so many people I listen to regularly. And there are a lot of great preachers and a lot of preachers better than me. But I can tell you, nobody can preach a greater salvation. And nobody can preach a greater gospel. And right here in these verses, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the story of Christmas. And Jesus purged our sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I want to draw a picture in your mind just for a moment. I want you to go back with me to to Jesus' day. And we're going to walk into the temple. And there were seven pieces of furniture in the temple. And I want you to see them as we walk in. We walk into the temple and there's an altar there. And on that altar, that's where whenever they would make those sacrifices, they would put that animal on that altar and they would burn it until it was consumed. That was the altar. And then in that same room, when we walk in, there's a a lavatory. And that lavatory was for the priest. And that priest would go over and he would wash his hands and feet. He did every single day before he did his service in the temple. Two pieces of furniture. An altar and a lavatory. And then, as you walk into the next little room, this is like the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. And in here, you see three pieces of furniture. You see a golden lampstand. And here you see a a golden altar of incense. And here you see a a golden table of bread. The bread would be placed on that that, uh, table, the table of showbread. These three pieces of furniture. Priest's responsibility was to go in there every day and make sure that he kept that lamp burning, that he kept that incense burning, and that once a week he would change out that bread. That's seven pieces of furniture in the temple. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. You know about what that is, right? And in the Holy of Holies, there was a, a, a piece of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were two tablets. It was the Ten Commandments. 
And inside the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were, uh, was, a, was uh, 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 the manna that they had taken from whenever they wandered in the wilderness. And then that was the sixth piece of furniture. It represented God's presence. And then on top of that would be what we call the mercy seat. And it was gold and it had two cherubim that faced each other. And so when that, when that high priest would slaughter that animal, he'd take that blood that he collected and he'd pour it on the mercy seat. And that's what it was like. And year after year, they would do the same thing. Day after day, they would do the same thing. But you know what was missing in the temple? A chair. There was not a chair in the temple because the priest never got to sit down. His work was never done. The Bible says here that whenever Jesus uh, uh, purged our sin, that He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because while it was completed, He purged our sin. There is no greater sacrifice than Jesus. He completed it all. He purges our sin. I don't know about you, but that ought to be exciting. He finished the work. The priest never finished. It was day after day, year after year. But Christ finished the work and He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Moses is not sitting at the right hand. Isaiah is not at the right hand. The prophet Samuel is not at the right hand. King David is not at the right hand. Jesus is at the right hand. He is greater than all the prophets and He's greater than all the priests. He completed the work. He purged our sin. And He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And maybe this morning you're struggling with a sin problem. And you've got the sin in your life and you can't get rid of it. But let me just tell you, you can never deal with the sin problem until you deal with the Jesus question. I wish I had came up with that, but it wasn't mine. I don't know who said it. But until you deal with the Jesus question, you can never deal with your sin problem. Until you put your sin in the blood of Christ, you'll never be free. I remember reading a story about a little boy who came forward in a church maybe like this, except they were very Calvinistic leaning, and they, he came up to the service that day, and he wanted to be saved. And at the end, they said, well, just share your testimony with the church. And the little boy said, well, you know, I did my part and, and Jesus did his part. And I said, what do you mean you did your part and, and Jesus did his part? He said, well, I did the sinning and he did the saving. <laughs> and that's really what it's like. We sin and Jesus saves. And until you put your blood on the cross, you're never going to be free. And so maybe this morning, you don't know Christ and your, your blood's not covered. If that's the case, in just a few moments when we have an invitation, I'd love for you to come forward so we can just sit down and talk with you about it. Or you can see me after the service. But let me just tell you this. Eternity is too long for you to ignore it. Hell is too real for you to be complacent. You need to be proactive. And if I was not saved and I felt like I was lost, I would not leave this place that way. Or maybe this morning you feel like your life's just coming apart. It's just coming unglued. And maybe this morning you need to say, Jesus, I know you're the one who holds the universe together. Would you hold me together? Would you hold my life together? Or maybe you're a child of God, but you've just gotten entangled with some sin, and maybe this morning you just need to come before God and say, I want to, I want to give it to you. I turn it over to you. I want my sin under the blood of Christ. Would you do that? And the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. And cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Would you do that? I want to invite you to do that this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you first of all for Jesus being the revelation 
I want to thank you for the creation of Jesus, the incarnation, the salvation of Jesus. And Lord, I know so many people are outside of Christ. So many people don't know you as Lord and Savior. Would you draw them to yourself today? Lord, I pray for people's hearts that we would be sensitive to your leadership. Help us to respond to you, whatever you tell us. Help us not to be afraid or embarrassed about what you've called us to do. Help us to act quickly. Oh, Lord, you've come to purge our sins, and then you sat down at the right hand of the Father. What a beautiful picture that is. Lord, I just pray that people respond to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just invite you to stand. Would you respond how the Lord leads you? To every question, the one